Paul's, a reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully maltreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak, not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you, that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our, our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we not so that we might not burden you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you should lead a life worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we, uh, we think on these words of the Apostle Paul, that you would uh, give us hearts that are open and desire to understand, and that you'd actually help us to know how we might be uh, persons and a community that inhabit and embody the same pattern that Paul is talking about um, in this letter. So meet us, we ask in uh, Jesus' name. Amen. So this particular text, as we're, we're in a series on uh, First Thessalonians, all right, that Chris started off with last week, and, 
It's an important text. This particular text is a pretty important one to me for, uh, for uh, just a reason that I started thinking about it very differently maybe uh, back in 2001. Now, why 2001? Well, 2001 because uh, Stacy and I uh, took on a risk. We moved our family from the beauties and uh, lovely uh, setting of Charlottesville, Virginia, a setting that we loved, and a church that we loved, and a community that we loved, to New York City. And, and then again, it resurfaces when we made another move, and that was the move to Philadelphia when we took on planting City Church. Now, neither of these things were on our bucket list. You know, I think it's fair to say that we never imagined ourselves living in New York City. We never imagined ourselves being back in Philadelphia planting a church. That was not on the radar. When Tuck and Stacy got married and when we took on this life of ministry and the church, uh, it wasn't on the bucket list. So New York City was culturally, religiously, uh, certainly the way life was structured, radically different from any other place that we had ever lived in life. Individually, growing up in parts of the South, uh, collectively, moving progressively through parts of the South as, as, as a pastoral family. Um, uh, it just was completely unfamiliar. Had we visited New York City? Yes. Did we like it? Yes. As tourists. And we happened to take on this challenge, like literally in the middle of 9-11, like we were there that day, and, it, and we moved one month later. And so all of a sudden, we'd, we'd accepted a job that we thought one way about, and then all of a sudden we were in a job that we suddenly were forced to think very differently about because of terrorism. And so the question is, how do you live life? Like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in a context like that? Or in a context like this, when we come to start a church, work we never imagined doing. Like, what does it mean to think about the mission of God in the context of our lives, and what does it mean for you to think about the mission of God in the context of your ordinary lives across all the spheres, all the spaces of your responsibility, all the things that you do, all the moves that you might even make in your life? What does that mean? Here's how this verse, this text, came into play uh, for me. And it happened when I was being installed as a pastor, and there we are in this little, very short little moment in the context of a Redeemer worship service, you know, being installed as a pastor, and Tim Keller stands up and he reads uh, part of this text and focuses on verse 8, where Paul just simply says that we gave you not only the gospel, but our very selves. We gave you the gospel, but our very, not only the gospel, but our very selves. And, and he went on to say just very simply this, the impact you will have here is your life. Not your words. It's your life. What people that you're going to bump into in your apartment building and what people that you're going to bump into in the neighborhood when you repeatedly go to, you know, the same bagel store all the time, what people are going to need when you show up at church and you just begin to meet people, right? Just ordinary people. And what people need when you encounter them in some way, when you just wherever you are, what they need is to experience a person, a married couple, a family that takes the story of Jesus seriously. I mean, that's what they need. They don't need you to have fancy words. They don't need you to have all these sort of wonderful rhetorical ways of talking about Jesus or apologetically preaching about Jesus. They need to see faith embodied in in a person, right? And so that just reframed for me 
what it meant for me to think about this work that I'd taken on, that I had one way of thinking about it, but all of a sudden I was being pushed to think about it in a very different way, our life in Christ together. The story of Christ is more caught than taught, we might say. And why is that? It's because human imagination, my imagination, is stuck in whatever formed you as a person. You've had a certain set of experiences as a human being in this world. Some of them have been very good, some of them very bad, some very scary, some maybe that made you laugh, you know, that brought a lot of joy into the room in a moment, and some that left you just confused. That history of experiences, wherever it played out, is impressed, seared upon your conscience as to what life is all about. It's how you process reality. And the only way that you and I begin to have an imagination for something other than that which we've ever experienced is if you experience Jesus in some new context, right? It's when you experience the promises of God's kingdom, right, in some embodied way among a people. This is why church membership is really important, because it's a way of saying we bind ourselves to a people to walk with them with Christ. It's why, um, you know, we, we constantly need to get into spaces where we get out of the rut of our own thinking and our own imagination, the bubble of the evangelical world, if you will. And we recognize and we discover what God loves and what he cares about. And that's really all this verse is talking about, is what does it mean for you to become a person that receives the selves of others who are formed by Christ, and you become a self in the presence of other people that are helping them understand what it means to follow Jesus. Now for Paul, in this particular context, if you think back to some of the things Chris said last week, in this particular context, that meant for Paul to live very differently than a set of people that the Thessalonians were very accustomed to hearing from. And these would be like, I think of them as itinerant speakers of some sort, maybe a preacher, a philosopher, who's passing through the community and they're sort of hawking their hope, right? They're sort of, you know, they're, they're the snake oil salesman, right? Yeah, that's who they are. Um, Paul reminds us, basically, I wasn't like that. That's not how I was. I wasn't like the sophist that you heard. I wasn't like those people. Uh, that's not how we came to you. This weekend, we were having a funny conversation around the dinner table, uh, and Emily was, we were laughing because one of the favorite, like, childhood, we loved musicals in our family, right? So we would expose the kids to these musicals, and one of our favorite ones that we listened to over and over again and watched and saw performed was The Music Man. And you know, Professor Harold Hill, you got trouble? Trouble right here in River City. There's trouble with a capital P. And so Emily, we were talking about, she said, like, what were you thinking? He was a crook. Paul says, I'm not a crook. You know, I'm not, I wasn't like that. I wasn't sort of showing up in your town peddling hope that was false. I wasn't showing up in your town trying to make a buck off of you. I showed up in your town, in your community, as a person called by God, shaped by God, and who desperately wanted you to have the same hope of God's presence in your life, in your community. I wanted you to come into the kingdom. I wanted you to be a part of this glorious kingdom of God. That's really 
what Paul says. So it meant things for him like, you know, instead of coming in and, 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 and collecting money or something, Paul, um, which he said he had a right to do, he certainly didn't see it as an illegitimate thing to do, but he, he said instead of doing that, I, I worked with my hands. And Now, look, we don't glorify tent making. That's not what he's doing here. Paul says, I worked with my hands. Do you know what that meant? He, he said, I did the work of like the work that slaves did. I did the work that, that menial laborers in the community did. Now translate that into our community. You know, maybe he says, you know, I, I drove Uber. I drove Lyft. I delivered pizzas. I, I took a construction job. I, in other words, he's not saying I became a working professional in your midst and I still preach the gospel to you. He says, no, I did whatever I could do to support myself so that you wouldn't think I was like Professor Harold Hill. I live differently among you. I want to focus on two things that I think are really important in this particular passage and two things that help me and I hope will help you as you think about what it means for you to live and embrace the mission of God. It's, it's really, you know, you could call it two postures of life. You could think about it as a practice even. But, uh, but two things really, and it's, the, it's where Paul says, we please God, not people, and we love like a mother and a father. So uh, our pleasing of God and our love like a mother and a father. So first, verse four, we ple- pleasing God, not people. Now, you could popularly summarize this in, um, you know, in, 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 the, in the phrase or the, the almost cliche at this point, living for an audience of one. Uh, you know, you could just think about it that way. Um, and, and maybe you use a word or a phrase like that to remind yourself of certain things, right? I, that's how I use it, that's how Stacy uses it, is you know that you get into circumstances where you are called upon to do some hard thing or say some hard thing, and maybe you're afraid of, maybe you're afraid like Owen was of being in front, you know? Owen, you need to remember you're living in an audience, before an audience of one, right? You know, we, we're afraid to be in front of people, I'm afraid to have a hard conversation with someone, I'm afraid to disappoint someone, and so on and so forth, right? Living for an audience of one is simply reminding ourselves as Christians this, that I live before the pleasure of God. I live before God's approval and not the approval of all the people around me. That's so important. It's such an important liberator in our human lives to say something like that or to hold on to that idea. Now, living before a God that delights in you and his pleasure and not the pleasure of other people, it is a powerful reality to hold on to, but there are a lot of wrong ways that people might use a phrase like that. And we just need to own that and acknowledge that. And even that Christians use that poorly, right? So, uh, so for example, I was just thinking about this a little bit, and I thought, well, on the, on the light extreme, right, if you sort of think about one, one way of misusing this, it could be when a leader or really anyone in the church or any one of your friends sort of uses a statement like that to give themselves liberty to not care what you think. You know, in other words, we can take a phrase like that and just be arrogant with it. Like, life is about me. It's about my individualism. It's about, you know, God gives me the liberty to just be the person that I am and not give a rip about the person that you are, right? So you, you know examples of that in your own life. I can think of them in mine. Or maybe it's even more extreme abuses of this. And you might think of uh, groups like radicalized fundamentalists would be the groups that I would think about, for example, who justify what? Harm and abuse in the name of God. We're all trying to get God on our side on something. 
And there's an abusive way in which this is often playing out in contemporary society. It played out this way last weekend in San Diego, frankly. And that young man, the scariest thing to me about that is that he was a Presbyterian. He grew up one step removed from the tradition that trained me. That freaks me out, and it should, because it's an abuse of this kind of an idea of living for God's pleasure and thinking somehow we've secretly discerned what that pleasure is at the expense of other people. Paul is not talking about that at all. Paul is talking about living before God's approval of him and his call of him in such a way that it liberates Paul to love like a neighbor, to love like a mother and like a father. That's what Paul is talking about. The point is the loving gift of yourself to the neighborhood for the sake of God's kingdom. That's how Paul is using that idea. Now, whenever, without living for God's pleasure, right, here's the thing, you won't ever love the way Jesus loved. You won't ever love the way Jesus loved because you'll always be in front of people worried, anxious about their approval of you or your desperate need to be approved by them. So there are two freedoms, I think, that come out of this concept, this phrase, this posture, this practice. On the one hand, it's the freedom to disappoint people. Do you in your life feel and live with the freedom to disappoint others? Now, nobody's walking around saying, I really want to disappoint you today. But you need that freedom or you will never love them well. It's not because, it's not about being arrogant or having power or having status or standing your ground against all odds, but it is the freedom to not get bent out of shape when you don't please other people and when they fail to please you. That is an important freedom that nurtures love. It's an important freedom that allows love to actually thrive, that in its absence it will never thrive. It will always be a self-oriented love. It will always be a love that is not for the other but for yourself. It will always be a distortion of love. And here's why that is. Because you and I live in a world that is broken. It is not the way it ought to be. Do you know what that means? It means that you yourself are not the way you ought to be. It means that I am not the way I ought to be. So I should not be surprised when someone says, hey, you disappointed me. I should not be surprised when someone isn't pleased with me. You should not be surprised with that either. (laughs) Because we are broken, fallen human beings who live by the old imagination. We don't live by the new imagination of God's kingdom. And that's why we're a part of the body of Christ, because we need one another to help us see what God loves and what he wants so that we actually inhabit his world differently. Jesus graciously intervened in the ruin of this world and of your life so that you might be changed by his gracious presence into one who loves freely. Now, the second side of this is that it, 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 it gives you the freedom 
to engage the disappointments of others. So it's not just the freedom of being a disappointment, right? You know, but you actually gain the freedom to engage the disappointments of others and of your own self graciously. What do I mean by that? I mean, I mean just this, that God loves you and he delights in you as a human being. His loving gaze is upon your life and that in and of itself should give you the courage to be willing to hear the disappointments that others have with you. So that you actually engage them, you take them up in your life in some way, you recognize, of course there are things that need to be changed about my life. And you know, Jack Miller, who, who was a, a minister in the area a number of years ago, he uh, was very fond of saying, yes, um, I'm, I'm dis- I've disappointed you or I'm a sinner, but you don't know the half of it. You know, I know my story better than you know my story and you're disappointed in a part of my story, but there is a lot more to be disappointed about. I ought to be willing to look at those things. I ought to be willing to be curious about those things, right? And so I ought to become a person of love and compassion toward others and of myself in those spaces, the freedom to disappoint and the freedom to engage the disappointments, to ask hard questions about myself, rather than just dropping in to the pathological way of being human in which we merely compare, compete, critique, and condemn. Do you want freedom like that? (laughs) Live before God and his approval. That's where it comes from. Being raised up into Christ as one in whom God delights will give you the freedom to disappoint and the freedom to engage disappointments. It'll give you a holy curiosity about all of that which God seeks to change and the freedom to talk about it. That's God's call. Without this singular life before God, you not, you rather, not God, will control the way you take up your interactions with other human beings. Here, what Paul speaks of as mother and father love. So let's think about that secondly, right? This love like a mother and like a father. I love that Paul applies both parts to himself. I loved you like a mother and I loved you like a father. Verse 7, he says this. He says, we were gentle among you. There's no abuse here. It's not just the absence of flattery. There is gentleness in Paul's life among the Thessalonians, right? We loved you. We were gentle. We were like a nurse with her own children. In other words, this is mother love. This is loving someone in those earliest stages of life when, when they need the tenderness of care, right? Of coming alongside a child, right? Paul says, we did that with you. Verse 11, we dealt with each of you like a father with his children, urging, encouraging, pleading. So here's the thing. Gentleness to what end? Urging, encouraging, and pleading to what end? Paul describes it at the very end in verse 12, that you would live in a worthy way with this God who in Christ has called you into his kingdom and his glory, who's given you a new imagination for a new way of living your own human life. That's what this boldness on the one hand and this motherly, fatherly love on the other hand is all about. It is toward that aim. This kind of mother and father love has the singular aim of their life before God. 
That's what Paul is interested in. That's what spiritual friendship is that's different from regular, ordinary practices of friendship. A spiritual friend is someone who can come alongside of you and help you understand the story of Christ in a way that they, it fits into the corners of your life. They're interested in your life before God as a member and a participant called into his kingdom. That's what the love of Paul was all about. It's not a love that places someone, a child, inside of this metaphor, right, as the object of their happiness. We've all seen that. If you've been a parent, you've experienced it. You have always experienced that you have made your child the object of your happiness. It is a terrible way to love our children, but every single one of us in the room that has ever had a child or ever cared about someone else's child knows that sometimes you aim at them in all the wrong ways. You make them the burden of your own happiness. Paul says, he's not calling us to do that, right? It's not putting your child as the object of your happiness and slavishly pleasing that child. Can you imagine that? You've seen parents do this. When every action is about making that child happy. And you know what happens to that child? That child becomes a spoiled brat who has no way of knowing how to live in the world as a loving human being because you've only ever slavishly lived toward that child. You've not lived toward them in order to liberate them into life of an adult in the kingdom of God. But the opposite, there's another danger here with parent love, right? And we've seen this too, and we've all participated in this. If you've ever been close to a friend or you've been close to a child or you've had a child, right? And that is that you live your dreams through your child. You place the burden of your own expectations on your child in a way that, that they are crushed by them. They're hampered by them. They're hemmed in by them. Paul is talking about a love that has been liberated and reordered out of the brokenness of this world. It has been shaped by the way God loves us in Jesus Christ. That's how we love with freedom with generosity, with courage, with compassion. It's the kind of mother and father love that I think we heard John and Caitlin take vows about this morning and that we as a congregation took vows about in terms of upholding the love of members in our community, right? That, that we want to love this way. We want to help our children and we want to help all of us grow up into our life in God's kingdom on mission so that when we think about our ordinary spaces of life, when you're at work tomorrow, when you're in your neighborhood this week, when you're in a tough conversation with a friend or a happy conversation with a friend, that you're constantly mindful of the fact that God has intervened in your life in Jesus Christ. And that's your hope. It's your confidence. His intervention in the world leads you to intervene and be present differently. It is a love that on the one hand doesn't make the happiness of others our aim, and it doesn't load them with the burden of our own unhappiness, squeezing them to, into every empty crevice of our own lives. Rather, it's the risk of vulnerable love, of coming alongside of all the broken experiences in this world, aware of God's intervening love for our lives and for our friends and for people that we'll meet today and tomorrow. And it's in this context that we become people that not only offer words about Jesus, but our very selves. That's what Paul 
is calling them towards. He says, we loved you like that. So I just imagine that, right? What, what did that look like? Well, it meant that when someone needed to have their hand held, you held their hand. And it meant that when someone falls down, you help pick them up. And it meant that when someone needed a nudge to crawl on their own, you nudge them to crawl on their own because they need to learn how to crawl so they can learn how to walk, so they can learn how to run. So you do those kinds of things, moving them into greater agency inside of themselves. And you just stop helping all the time. But you love. His presence was familial in the best life-giving way so that they would embrace a certain way of loving God and living and inhabiting their lives inside of this world. I want to close with a story. It's a story that uh, the psychologist Robert Coles tells about his work with uh, children um, um, with children in the 1960s during a period of, of desegregation. Uh, if you've ever read any of his work, he did extensive research into this space. He tells the story of one young African-American girl uh, in New Orleans who was a part of integrating the school system there in 1960. And this was a time when, right, federal marshals would escort these children into the classroom. And sometimes the segregationist would just stay all day long and wait on the other end so that they could just keep jeering at these children uh, on the other end of the day. I mean, it was a horrific space that was so normalized in the South and in other parts of our country. So he tells this story of, of Tessie and her friends. And so Coles would take a tape recorder and he would record these conversations, basically, right? And so, uh, so Tessie had a, a grandmother who was a great encourager and mentor to her. And, and one day he records a, a conversation in which the grandmother just says, I'm, I'm not... I'm not the one to tell you that you should go because I'm here. I'll be watching television and eating and cleaning things up while you, this little child, you're the one walking to school. <laughs> Gosh. She says this, but I'll tell you, you're doing them a great favor little girl, you're doing them a great favor. You're doing them a service, a big service. She goes on to say, you see, my child, you have to help the good Lord with his world. He put us here, and he calls us to help him out. She goes on, you belong in that McDonough school. And there'll be a day when everyone knows that. Even those poor folks, Lord, I pray for them. Those poor, poor folks who are out there shouting their heads off at you. You're one of the Lord's people. He's put his hand on you. He's given you a call, a call to service in his name. Some weeks later, Cole reports a conversation with Tessie in which she says, she was describing what she understood her grandmother to be saying. If you just keep your eyes on what you're supposed to be doing, then you'll get there to where you want to go, she explained. And she said, the marshals would say to me, don't look at them, just lift your head up high and walk straight ahead, don't look. But my granny would say that there's God, and he's looking too. 
And I should remember that it's a help to him to do this, what I'm doing. And if you serve him, then that's important, so I keep trying. And then years later, as he's processing this with her, she says this, we were supposed to get them to stop being so angry, and then they'd quieten down. And we have the desegregation, and now that's happening. So we did the service we were supposed to do in New Orleans. And Granny says, next it'll be some other thing to do, because you always should be trying to help out God. Living before an audience of one. Loving in mother-father love the way Jesus has loved us in mother-father love so that you, so that I, so that we take up our calling in this world and we come along those most broken spaces in the world and in life and we love the way Jesus loves. We give our very selves, not just words. That's what this text is about. How we might take up the mission of Christ in the world. May God give us grace to experience his love that we may offer it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we live busy lives. We live fearful lives. We live in a world where we get caught up again in the American dream and we just want what we want and we don't know what you love. So we pray that in our life together, in our worship together, as we gather to your table, as we sing songs, as we pray our prayers, that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, would remind us of those things that you love, and most of all, that you would remind us that in Jesus Christ, you have truly loved us, so that we might live by this new imagination of the kingdom of heaven come to earth. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.